Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. I hope you're enjoying these small town histories because I really enjoy bringing them to you. If you like, you can support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. I do this full time and every dollar you give helps keep all of it going. If you really like it, please consider giving it a rating and review. And don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, Pucks and Cups and From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. Today, I'm looking at the history of Steinbeck, Manitoba. It's a cool community with some very interesting visitors, and I'm going to get right into that. Of course, when I look at the history of a community, I don't do a chronological look, but I look at the various aspects of the history. Also, there's various German and Ukrainian names in here, and I apologize if I mispronounce anything. Indigenous History The area around Steinbach is home to the Ojibwe-speaking Anishinaabe people who would fish, hunt, and trap in the area, moving over the borders that would not exist for centuries. The indigenous would live on the land for thousands of years, but over time, new arrivals came into the area. By the time that the Mennonites arrived, the land was mostly occupied by the Métis, who were farming and participating in their annual bison hunts that continued until 1874, when the last of the hunts occurred due to the dwindling numbers of bison. On August 3, 1871, the indigenous of the area signed Treaty 1 and moved on to the Broken Head Indian Reserve and the Rousseau River Anishinaabe First Nation Reserve. The Founding of the Community In 1870, Manitoba became a province and only four years later, Steinbach was founded by Russian Mennonites, 18 families in total, who came from the Borisenko colony that is today in the Ukraine. It was from there that the name Steinbach came from, and upon their arrival, two Mennonite groups settled in the East Reserve area next to future Steinbach. The settler families for Steinbach would arrive on their land in the summer of 1874. Settling on the higher lands and gravel ridges, they chose the best land they could on the northeast corner of the East Reserve. Those 20 homesteads would be laid out on the northeast side of present-day Main Street, and the village was organized into a Strassendorf, also known as a street village. And this meant that each family occupied a long, narrow strip of land. In 1875, the settlers built a school, and the main street of Steinbach was cleared of the poplar bush. That same year, the spiritual leader of the community, Jake Barkman, drowned in the Red River, and John Holdeman would take on the mantle of spiritual leadership in a few years' time. In 1877, the first windmill in the town was built by Abraham Friesen, and by 1882, the village had grown to 28 families with a population of 128 people. By 1900, the land had been cleared and was suitable for farming wheat, barley, oats and potatoes. In 1901, the population was 366 and most of the population spoke, I'll do my best to pronounce this, Plantdeutsch, and only a few spoke English. In 1910, the Strassendorf system ended in town and the village was surveyed and land was redistributed. By this point, change was coming to the community. 
Only two years later, J.R. Friesen opened the first Ford dealership in Western Canada. I'll get to more on that later. In 1915, the population of the community was 463, and the first bank in the community would open that year. The town would continue to grow through the 1920s and the difficult 1930s. But as the Nazis and Soviets began to take over parts of Europe, the Mennonites would flee to Canada. On December 31, 1946, Steinbach was incorporated as a town, and Klaus Barkman was elected as the mayor. Also in the Barkman family, Leonard Barkman was elected mayor in 1958, serving until 1970. During that same time, he also became the first Mennonite elected to the Manitoba legislature, where he served from 1962 to 1973. In 1972, Jake Epp, the local high school teacher, became the first Mennonite elected to Parliament. Steinbach was incorporated as a city on October 10, 1997, and by 2016 the community had nearly 16,000 people, up from 2,100 in 1951. The Mennonite Heritage Village The biggest tourist attraction in the entire area is the Mennonite Heritage Village, which opened in 1967 and has seen significant growth since then. Featuring horse barns, churches, and other buildings that date back to the 1800s, the facility documents the origin of the Mennonites in the Netherlands and Switzerland and their voyage to Canada. The Dutch windmill is one of the most recognizable parts of the museum, and it's a replica of the original windmill that was built in Steinbach in the 1880s. The first replica was destroyed by arsonists in 2000. Also in the outdoor village, you will find a section of the Berlin Wall, an original sawmill, and two monuments erected to honor Jake Hopner and Johann Barsch, who had chosen the original site for the colonists. Each year, 47,000 people on average come to the museum from around the world. The Walking Tour Along the walking tour, which is self-guided and runs for about 3.5 kilometers, you can see much of the unique history of the community. I won't go through all the items on the tour, but I will cover some that I found interesting. At 255 Hanover Street, you'll find the Friesen House, which I'm discussing in the next section. At 236 Main Street, you'll find Fairway Ford, which is the original site of the first Ford dealership ever opened in Western Canada. Again, more on that later. At 377 Main Street, you will come across the Carillon, the local newspaper that was previously called the Steinbeck Post. The business was originally a German-speaking newspaper, but in 1946, it was changed to the Carillon News and became the first English newspaper serving southeastern Manitoba. At 280 Barkman Avenue, there is a crabapple tree that was planted in 1905 by Jacob and Anna Barkman. Interestingly, the tree branched off itself about 20 years ago, and since then, the tree produces fruit on only one trunk in alternating years. And at 376 Elmdale Street, there are oak trees in the front yard that are 180 years old, 45 years older than the community itself. The Friesen House Located within Steinbeck, you will find the two-and-a-half-story Friesen House, which was built in 1916 on a simple four-square design. Built by Jacob R. Friesen, the man who would open that Ford dealership, he was a noted businessman in the area and helped the community gain the reputation as the Automobile City. 
For years, the home sat next to his dealership and garage on Main Street, and that garage would see a notable aircraft in the area built, but I'll get to that. The home was lived in by the family for many years. In his dealership, for which he was excommunicated from the church, 70 cars per year were sold at a cost of $65 each. Eventually, the building would be moved to a residential neighborhood where it served as a nursing home, a residence for nurses, and a rooming house. And while J.R. Friesen is long gone having died on August 6, 1950, 10 years after his dealership burned down, the home remains and was made a municipal heritage site on September 7, 2004. The first Ford dealership. In 1914, Jacob Friesen was selling farm implements when he decided that the time was right to take a leap and begin selling cars. He would write to Henry Ford and ask to become a Ford dealer. And while Henry Ford had never heard of the village before, he was impressed with the request and he agreed. On June 6, 1914, Friesen officially became not only the first auto dealer in Steinbach, but the first in Western Canada. The business was an immediate success and he sold 11 cars by the end of the year. The vehicles would arrive by train to Winnipeg, where they were assembled and then shipped in a boxcar to the community. During the winter, Friesen could not sell cars as no cars were on the road, but by spring he would be back up and running. In 1915, he was able to sell 22 cars, although not everyone liked this new invention. Friesen would report to the Steinbach Post that a driver of a horse-drawn wagon would not let him pass on a country road. And the first car-pedestrian accident would occur in 1916, leaving 73-year-old Abraham Schellenberg lame as a result. That being said, the car quickly showed the benefits of having one when Peter Froes fell ill with typhoid. A phone call was made and three men journeyed out on a journey that would take a wagon a day, but only took a couple of hours in a car, and the car likely saved Peter's life. The William Plain School Another historic building in the area is found in nearby Sarto. The Willow Plain School was built as a wooden one-room school in 1911, along the rural highway by early Ukrainian settlers to the area. Located across from the St. Michael's Ukrainian Church in the area, the school was built in the style of the early one-room schools that were found at the turn of the 20th century. With the school nearby, many of the students who attended the school also attended the church, and originally the school was going to be lost, but the community saved it before it could be destroyed, and today it remains the only remaining historic school on its original site in the entire area. On December 17, 2003, the school was made a municipal heritage site. I'd like to take a break away from the episode for a second to talk about ExploreNet. I spent most of my life living in rural areas in Canada, and I remember the days of dial-up internet and spotty high-speed service. For the past three years, I have been a customer of ExploreNet, and I can honestly say that it is the best rural internet I have ever had. My job as a podcaster means I spend a lot of time researching online, interviewing people over Zoom, and uploading content. Through it all, ExploreNet has provided me with excellent service. When I'm not working, I enjoy streaming content on several streaming platforms and even doing some online gaming with a friend in Ontario. ExploreNet allows me to do all of that with ease. 
Right now, they offer up to 50 megabits per second on their new LTE network with unlimited data. Their service has only become faster and better since I first signed on. Today and beyond, ExploreNet is investing in building and upgrading the network at a rapid pace. ExploreNet is rural, and that is their route, and that is their focus. For more information about rural internet options in your area, go to ExploreNet.com or call 1-866-285-2253. Famous Visitors For any community, the visit of a significant individual is a big event. In Canada, the big three for visits are Queen Elizabeth II, a Prime Minister, and a Governor-General. Most communities get one. A couple get two. But then there are places like Steinbach, which has seen visits from all three from time to time. I will begin with the Governor-Generals. The first Governor-General to visit Steinbach was Lord Dufferin, who came out to the community on August 21, 1877. Joining the Governor-General was German Consul William Hespeller, who was a major reason that the Mennonites had come to Canada. To welcome Lord Dufferin, 700 people came out and the air of excitement was high for residents. A platform was built with German and British flags and flowers were put on it. Banner also hung over the archway that said, Wickelman. Local children also sang a welcome song and three girls provided the dignitaries with tea. During his visit, Lord Dufferin would say, quote, If you come hither to seek peace, peace at last we can promise you. End quote. For many, this visit was a turning point for the growth of Steinbach. The next Governor-General to visit Steinbach would be Lord Besseborough, who arrived on August 3, 1933. The community was deep in the harvest season, but that did not stop a lot from coming out to see the notable visitor. A public reception was held at the old school grounds to welcome Lord Besseborough. On March of 1958, while on the campaign trail, John Diefenbaker came out and was welcomed to the community. A total of 3,000 people came out to Steinbach to see the dynamic new politician. About 1,500 people jammed themselves into the Penner Tire and Rubber Company storage shed, with another 1,500 circling the building outside listening over the public address system. Diefenbaker spoke about what his government would accomplish, and he praised the Conservative members who had represented the area over the years. Diefenbaker would go on to win the largest majority in Canadian history to that point later that year and he would return in October of 1965, but by this time he was no longer Prime Minister, and 700 people came out to hear him talk. I released an episode on my podcast From John to Justin all about John Diefenbaker. It's a really interesting one, I encourage you to check it out. In April of 1962, Lester B. Pearson, just prior to winning the June 18, 1962 election, spoke to 900 people, including 350 high school students. He then spent some time walking around the crowd, shaking hands with many people, and he would soon be elected as the 14th Prime Minister of Canada. And again, I also did an episode on Lester B. Pearson, my favourite Prime Minister, and it's on From John to Justin, available on all podcast platforms. On July 1, 1970, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau visited Steinbach and was greeted by a crowd of 6,500 people. Wearing a striped open-button shirt and a bandana tied around his neck, he went through the crowd to shake hands, sign autographs, and to raise a centennial balloon. Also on hand was Bobby Gimby, 
the man who sang the Canadian Centennial Anthem, Canada. Trudeau then spoke to the crowd, who did their best to hear him in the 50-kilometer-hour winds that were whipping flags at a frenetic pace. Trudeau, who was not on a campaign stop, told everyone how pleased he was to visit the community, and he would say, quote, Ever since the early Mennonites settled here in Steinbach, this community has been known as having industrious and a hard-working people, and I did know there would be a lot going on today. End quote. And I just released my episode on Pierre Elliott Trudeau on my podcast From John to Justin, so again, check that out. Down the road, Brian Mulroney would visit the community in 1987 and 1992. One of the biggest visitors to ever come to the community was Queen Elizabeth II herself, who arrived on July 14, 1970 with Prince Charles, only two weeks after Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau visited the community. And the big event was announced as such, quote, It was the most memorable and exciting moment in the history of the Southeast. For the first time since the earliest European settlers arrived in the 1860s and 70s, a member of the British royal family paid a personal visit to the communities of La Boquerie, Steinbeck, Sarto, Grunthal, and St. Pierre. For these communities and their people, the visit by Queen Elizabeth and Prince Charles on the eve of Manitoba's 100th birthday highlighted a century of economic and cultural development. End quote. When the big day arrived, 10,000 people descended on the community to see Queen Elizabeth II arrive at 11.38 a.m. Nearly every person in the community had come out for the big event. Prince Philip and Princess Anne were not in Steinbach, though, as they attended a gliding championship at Carmen. The Queen was welcomed by Mayor L.A. Barkham, after which a German hymn by the community choir was sung. Four-year-old Lisa Dawn Epp would present Queen Elizabeth with flowers. And after this brief ceremony, the Queen and Prince Charles were on their way. And while many were able to see the Queen, there was some disappointment that they did not hear her speak. The Vita Disaster On June 19, 1955, the neighbouring community to Steinbach, Vita, was hit by a terrible disaster that wiped out a large portion of the community in only a few minutes. The community had been founded in 1898 by Ukrainian settlers, and at that point had a population of about 350 people. On the fateful day, the community's residents were going about their day as they had for years. A baseball game was in progress with Vita beating Woodmore 11-1. Then around 5pm the breeze began to pick up, and before long, black thunderheads were moving towards the community. The rain began to fall harder, and then a tornado began to descend from the clouds, moving straight towards Vita. The residents of the community quickly began to run for shelter, and soon after the tornado hit. For the next 120 seconds it would rip through the community, smashing windows, tearing roofs off of buildings, and sending cars through the air. Telephone and electric poles were snapped and thrown into buildings, and for Vita, day had turned to night as the tornado moved through. As soon as it had hit the community, it moved through, but it left behind a trail of complete destruction, and the disaster was not over yet. With the tornado now gone, fires started to burn in many destroyed buildings and homes. Thankfully, the fires were dealt with quickly, and rescuers began to dig through the rubble to find survivors. Amazingly, no one was killed, but eight people were severely injured, and 41 people were given first aid at nearby hospitals. 
The hospital in town was destroyed, as was the high school for the community. But there were some amazing and terrible stories from the disaster as well. Mike Sandal, a 75-year-old man, was thrown out of his home and fell across the street, wrapped in broken power lines. His house was completely destroyed. Nicky Stecky had just finished building his new bungalow, a process of two years, and as soon as it was done, the tornado arrived and destroyed the home before he could have ever lived in it. Edward Wolanski would lose a barn he had just finished working on after two years of saving money to build it, and his wife and daughter had crouched on the floor of their home when the storm hit. When the tornado passed, the pair were sitting in the open, with their home long gone. At the Lowen funeral home, the building was destroyed, but a black casket had come to rest in a ditch with a reef, totally intact, sitting on a nearby fence post. In all, the tornado caused $200,000 in damages or $2 million today. The Pitonpole Plain By 1931, the world was enthralled by the concept of flight. In Steinbach, J.R. Friesen, along with his son Edwin, decided that they would build an aircraft in their garage, and they were joined by two of the garage employees who had seen the plans for the plane in a magazine, and they decided to try it out. Friesen agreed to provide the funds for the venture, and to build and sell more planes if the venture was successful. Work began in the rear of the garage with nearly everything except the propeller being built completely by hand. The undercarriage for the plane was constructed from motorcycle wheels, a Model A Ford engine was rebuilt so that it could supply the power by means of a special carburetor, and they also got rid of the heavy cast iron manifold and built lighter ones for the aircraft. Residents became intrigued about the building of the plane, and at one point the pastor of the church came with his Bible and asked what scripture the men wanted said at their funerals. When the plane was finished, two Department of Transportation inspectors came out and agreed that it was possible to fly it. On May 2, 1932, at 10 a.m., the big moment had come, and a crowd of hundreds, some considered it the largest crowd ever assembled in the area at the time, came out to see the flight. Frank Brown was chosen to fly the plane as he had flown a plane during the First World War, and the plane then took flight, rising to 500 feet and circling the community. The event would spark the first fly-in in Steinbach when thousands came out to watch 14 planes land at the village, as part of a goodwill tour of Manitoba. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Steinbeck, Manitoba. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to canadaehx.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month, just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy McCallum, Diane Wade, Laurie-Ann Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Information comes from Hockey Hall of Fame, Montreal Maroons Greatest Players, Wikipedia, HockeyGods.com, and Sportsnet.ca.
Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.